Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the Etel East Trade Show in Boston on Wednesday, August 21st, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and unfortunately, Scott was unable to join us today, so I'm solo, but I'm making up for it by having a great guest on the show. Uh, welcome to the show today, Jim Whiskey, the CMO at CarMax. Thank you for having me, Jason. Uh I am super excited to have you on the show, and I suspect that most of our listeners are familiar with CarMax, um, but uh, may not fully perceive the scope. So can you kind of give us the the sort of elevator pitch of... Sure. Uh, like we're the uh, nation's largest retailer used uh, vehicles, and uh, we're basically coast to coast with over 200 stores, and uh, we sell three quarters of a million cars a year. That is awesome. And full disclosure, for me, uh, I spent some of my formative years at Best Buy, and so I still like I can't hear CarMax without thinking uh, the enemy at Circuit City. Yeah, yeah, we were uh, spun out of Circuit City in 1994. So uh, I'm dating myself. I know. Yeah, um, that that is uh, awesome. Uh, and you were the CMO. What sort of is the scope of a CMO at a company like CarMax? Like, what what sort of things do you get involved in, and how do you spend your day? Yeah, well, I think uh, you know the CMO role's a little different in every company, but at CarMax, I'm ahead of uh, all the traditional brand things like advertising, communications, PR, as well as strategy or marketing strategy and uh, analytics. And then in addition to that, I also head up our product organization. So uh, the product team focuses on uh, how we represent ourselves digitally as well as in the stores. Got it. So that whole in-store experience or in-dealership experience and the digital version of that is all, all in your scope. So it sounds kind of like a part-time job then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and how did you come to CarMax? What was your background prior to CarMax? Well, I started off uh, my uh, marketing career at FedEx, spent about a dozen years there, ended up heading up all U.S. marketing for them eventually. Uh, Then uh, went over to Cigna Healthcare, Nationwide Insurance, and uh, most recently, Scott's Miracle Grow. Uh, Awesome. Uh, So, you know, we talk about e-commerce a lot on the show, and there's this uh, book retailer in in Seattle, Amazon, that comes up periodically. And so... uh, FedEx makes a lot of cameos on the show when we're talking about logistics. But lately, the big news is they sort of boldly um, fired their customer a little bit in in Amazon. Um, I, I, as a impassioned uh, observer, do you follow that at all? Is that stuff? Oh no, I, I think everybody in retail uh, saw that. And uh, being a, a former associate at uh, FedEx, it was particularly interesting. Uh, I don't know why they did it, but FedEx is a pretty smart company, so I'm assuming they weren't making any money. Yeah, no, I tend to think uh, you have a finite amount of delivery capacity, um, and if you sell all that to the the company with the most leverage in the world, you have to sell it at the the lowest price point. And I, I have a feeling FedEx wisely figured out that they could sell their capacity elsewhere for more money. Um, 
at the same time that Amex is probably or uh, I'm sorry, Amazon's probably investing in their own capacity pretty aggressively. Yeah, Amazon. I don't know if you go through any neighborhood in America now, you're going to see those Amazon trucks everywhere. Oh my God, the trucks now and soon. There's now San Francisco and Seattle. It's the drones on the, the these on the sidewalks. There's crazy. Yeah. Well, and FedEx has their own little robot. Uh, making deliveries too. So I think it's the sidewalks are going to be a dangerous place here pretty soon. I know, I know. Uh, my poor four-year-old is going to have to learn a skateboard <laughs> somewhere else. I don't know how that's going to happen. Uh, the FedEx uh, drone is even cooler though because you can climb stairs and stuff. Yeah, it looked pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I like that video. Uh, so, you know, I have to tell you before we jump in any further, our co-host Scott is super bummed to not be here with me today. Um, we're both e-commerce guys. Uh, Scott founded a, a well-known company and took them public in the e-commerce space. Uh, but he uh, started a new business uh, a couple years ago, on-demand car washes. Oh, nice. And so they, he's now expanded into like 13 states and uh, raised a bunch of money. And uh, so so he's become a total car guy. So I know I just wanted to spiritually give sh- uh, Scott a shout out that, haha, I'm here and you're not. Yeah, and, and he's really going to be pissed because we're going to go on a test drive in a in a uh, Ferrari F40 right after this interview. That well, you didn't know this, but that I ca- I drive around in the black one all the time. Oh, okay. So well, I'm excited to try your we'll red little, one. We'll have a little race. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, he's more a Tesla guy, and he's going to point out that like potentially in a straight line, the Tesla can take the Ferrari. But I'm going to point out that as long as we put a curve in there, we're in great shape. Plus, you and I are going to look a lot cooler than Scott. Yeah, well, that was true even without the car. <laughs> uh, I love it when he's not here to defend himself. That's my favorite thing. Uh, so tomorrow you are speaking in e-tail, um, and your session title, your keynote is uh, CarMax Goes All In on Omnichannel, Building, Scaling, and Deploying with Speed. Um, and so I'm assuming you've thought about what you're going to say tomorrow, or are you going to work on that after this? No, I'm thinking if you have any words of wisdom, I'm going to incorporate those into my speech tomorrow. But uh, I have an outline, at least. Yeah. Well, what has mostly made uh, success for me is making fun of Scott. So I feel like ah. to the extent you do that on stage, you'll you'll be a hit with the audience no matter what. Um, well, I promise not to let any of uh, tomorrow's audience listen to the show in <laughs> advance. Um, can you give us sort of a, a high level about what your POV is? about? Like, what do, what do you mean by going all in on Omnichannel? Well, I think it's pretty clear across all uh, retailers that the consumer expects uh, to be able to conduct uh, business with uh, with brands both online and in-store, with retail brands. And uh, I think you see brands that are traditionally brick-and-mortar going into the online space and vice versa, right? So uh, our talk is going to be just how did we uh, excel at both make it a seamless experience, and then scale that out across the nation. We're right in the midst of uh, rolling this out. We're in, uh, in about four or five states right now, and by February we'll have more than 50% of our customers uh, on our omni-channel experience set. So it's really just about, like, how do you do that? How do you take a massive company and, and make this pivot really, really quickly? Yeah, and uh, I know it, it's generally pretty easy, right? You just send out a memo and everyone changes behavior instantly. Yeah, we, you know, we only have 25,000 associates on the front line, so I think they should be able to modify behavior within a week or two. Yeah, that seems like – I mean, maybe give it three weeks to be right. safe. Yeah. Um, so I think of CarMax as being sort of an original disruptor of the car shopping experience, Um 
But now shoppers are used to all of these digital amenities and omni-channel has, has become prevalent. And I assume that uh, the experience that all consumers have shopping, you know, doing buy online pickup in store at an apparel store or a, a consumer electronics store now impact their expectations when they shop for a much more expensive, higher consideration item like an automobile. Yeah, I, th- I think you're pretty uh, spot on on that. The the major, major difference is that this is a very considered purchase. So for a lot of our customers, this is the largest purchase they've ever made. And and for others, maybe it's the second largest. So the uh, buying journey is, is nonlinear, and it kind of starts and stops, and it swirls a little. And so being able to give the consumer a lot of, you know, full credit for everything they've done online for when they eventually walk into the stores. Extremely difficult, but uh, but absolutely critical. Yeah, and so let's dig into that a little bit. Like, there's two things I'm always interested in. So one is the customer-facing experience. So I've done a bunch of research on your website before I ever go to the store. Uh, I've probably, you know, evaluated your inventory, and I, you know, I, I probably shared a lot of preferences, and I might have even narrowed in on a specific vehicle before I land at the store. Um, does anyone in the store know all those things I did, or do I have to start over with that sales associate in the dealership? Yeah. Uh, so last year, you'd probably have to start all over. Uh, but this year, uh, we rolled out across all of our stores uh, our CRM pr- uh, platform, which is salesforce.com. Okay. And uh, we take all that information and all that work that you've done online Make sure that's readily available to the customer and the associate both. And so we try uh, to make it, uh, a, like I said, a very seamless experience where you don't have to repeat the effort that you've already put in. And you actually get credit for it, and you can progress quite quickly. So if uh, you progress uh, pretty fully online, you can walk into the store and get the keys and drive off in about 15 minutes. You still have to sign some papers. Each state's a little different, but uh, 15 minutes, 14 minutes is the fastest we've done one so far, but that's quite a different experience to walking into a dealer, spending all afternoon there, getting put in an office with the finance manager, and you know, eventually walking out feeling like, I don't know if I got a good deal. Yeah, so. yeah. You're almost at parity with the guys that steal the car now. <laughs> almost. It's yeah. almost as frictionless. I, I got I to trim five more minutes. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll make it so frictionless that they'll stop wanting to steal them yeah. uh, would be ideal. And then uh, the other thing that's interesting to me is the attribution. So you mentioned it's a considered purchase, so you're probably investing a bunch in marketing vehicles. And you know it's probably not very helpful to focus on last click attribution and see how many people – uh, immediately uh, transacted. So uh, do you guys have a notion of a omni-channel attribution model to try to understand how, how your marketing's impacting eventual sales? So yeah, we do uh, multi-touch uh, attribution analysis and uh, being able to figure out exactly that customer journey and what was influential and in then making the decisions has been pretty critical to our marketing investments. That certainly makes sense. You have over 200 stores now. Are there any particular challenges with uh, doing omni-channel at that kind of national scale, or is it actually easier when you're covering the whole country? Yeah, I you know I don't know which would be easier, but but it has been pretty challenging because it's a behavioral change for our associates, and so we were kind of the original disruptor in this industry. We rolled out no haggle pricing, and you know and uh, uh, allow the consumer to 
have a great retail experience in the used car industry. Nobody did that, and it was highly differentiating. The backbone of delivering that experience are our frontline associates that are in the stores. And so we have about 25,000 of them. And if we're going to roll out a new experience to the consumer, we first have to make sure that our associates are very aware, very comfortable, and very well trained on it because we're not going to take a step back in, the, in delivering an awesome experience. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And um, I, I sort of have a philosophy that most of these customer experiences are about 10% technology and platforms and 90% uh, people and organizational change management. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing when you deployed that CRM to 25,000 associates last year, um, that was a big cultural shift that you that had to be sort of embraced and reinforced. Was <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, Absolutely. I think uh, it was, you know, it's one of those who moved my cheese kind of moments for them. And so you had to show them how they're going to be more successful, how they're going to be able to provide an even better experience that maybe a little bit more personalized experience to the consumer. Our associates uh, really care about delivering that great experience. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but all of our sales consultants, for example, they're, they are on a flat commission. They don't care what car you're in. Sure. So they're not incented to put you in the car you can't afford. They're incented to put you in the car that best fits your needs. And anything that we can do on the technology side, on the data side, to allow them to better fit you into a great vehicle, the happier they are. And so once we showed them how, uh, how Salesforce.com was able to provide them information that allowed that personalization – they bought in wholly, and so we've been able. To, we've been very pleased with the experience that we're delivering right now. Yeah, that's awesome, and I, I can imagine there's a little bit of an internal communication to sort of uh, evangelize those benefits to those those internal associates. Uh, it's it's funny because in a lot of retail categories, people are now experimenting with. Uh, self-service technology, like digital, you know, amenities or, or you know, experiences on the phone that the shopper can use themselves. Uh, and it, it's always the case that the most cost-effective way to deliver a digital, digital experience inside of a store is to digitally enable that sales associate. Uh, it turns out it's really hard to get customers to download your app. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's easier to get those 25,000 associates using your app. Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the things I'm curious about is on the title of your, your topic, uh, you qualified that at speed. Uh, and uh, I suspect this is somewhat relative. Like, what does speed mean at, at CarMax? Is that... Um, you know, a, a transformation you're trying to change over a course of years? Is it something this year? Like, what, what is the, the speed goal? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I never thought of it as a speed goal, but the way I've thought about it is that we are the industry leader. We have a good distance between us and number two, and I want to extend that distance. So when I innovate, I want to get it out faster and faster and faster, and I want to do it at a pace that nobody else can keep up with. Um, so when we, we think about speed, we think about delivering those objectives every quarter. And then, you know, we obviously plan out years and, you know, one year and multiple years in advance, but it's really kind of orienting our product teams about delivering that next iteration or that next improvement in a relatively short amount of time, usually in about a two week sprint cycle. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's pivot a little bit to the car buying experience. Uh, you know, I sort of, uh, 
categorize things into two experiences. There, there's the used uh, vehicle experience, and there's a the new uh, experience. And wow, like you're clearly known for your used vehicles. I think you do own some new car dealerships as well, a few. Um, so, uh, but that gives you enough of a taste to that maybe you could weigh in on this a little bit. Uh, the new car buying experience in the U.S., like I would argue, totally sucks. Um, and uh, a big part of the reason why is there's this multi-tier distribution system, right? So there's got you know a company that manufactures the car, and they have to sell it to a local dealer who sells it to a consumer. And so if the experience is going to improve, every local dealer has to independently decide that they're going to improve the experience and sort of deploy it out. Like the manufacturer can't do something at scale and dictate that – that all these dealers do it. In the used car business, you don't have that multi-tiered model. You guys own the inventory. Uh, you're on the hook to sell the stuff, and you're on the hook to invent the experience across your, your 208 uh, stores to deliver that experience. Um, so as customer expectations elevate, and I bought a used car and I had a great experience, or I bought you know some, some, something else, um, there was a, I bought a wedding ring or some other high-considered item, uh, digitally and had this great experience, uh, and now I'm going to buy a new car for the first time, and I uh, have this sort of kludgy experience. The website that I'm doing research on can't even give me a price because the Mercedes website doesn't sell cars, <laughs> and and I you know the refer me to a dealer is kind of a I don't know it's an email marketing form or something. You know there are all the, these these frictions that consumers are increasingly not used to. Is is there any hope that that's going to change in the U.S.? Is that going to like, are, are, are we going to figure out how to deliver a good experience through that multi-tiered distribution model? Is, is our consumers ultimately going to put pressure on the model? And, you know, I know there's at least one car manufacturer that's trying to disrupt that. Like, what, what are your thoughts about uh, the evolution of the new car buying experience? Yeah, you, I think it's got to modify for a few reasons. So, one, I'm a big believer in macro trends. And there's certainly a macro trend around customers' expectations. Customers' expectations have never gravitated south. They've always gone up and up and up. And so the consumer is becoming, every year, less willing to put up with stuff that's suboptimal. Buying a car is going to be no different. Uh, Secondly, all the OEMs desperately would love to control the experience all the way through, but these dealer groups have a ton of power. I mean, I can... Only imagine the meetings where the dealers come in and they're unveiling new makes and models and new commercials and, you know, telling, telling the marketing department that they hate the commercials. And, I mean, I can only imagine how uh, those go because it's crazy how much power that they have. And they don't do what they don't want to do. Now, some of them are very progressive and they get right in line and they see the big picture. And, but most, most dealers, in my experience, are really about – extracting as much money out of your wallet as they can. And that just doesn't align with the consumer's expectations. So I think they're going to have to modify. And and when things like autonomous vehicles and things come out in the future, I think it's just going to put the increasing pressure on them to modify. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Another macro trend, while we're talking about macro trends, that's been interesting to me. uh, So people have been buying used cars, I assume, for almost as long as there have been cars. Uh, it's a high high capital expenditure per your point, and it, it like uh, it's not a new paradigm that you would buy a used car. It's not a new paradigm that you'd buy a used home. But the macro trend I'm noticing is previously owned products are becoming more popular in many more categories. So like in apparel, we now have 
uh, you know, monthly rentals of business attire from Rent the Runway, and we have the Real Real just going public, which sell all these uh, previously owned luxury goods. And Thread Up has been on the show, and all you know, as consumers get more and more used to getting a better value from these previously owned things, uh, does that make it e- like? even more likely that they're going to make a decision to a, a used car versus a new car or had the, had, had those sort of cohorts already played themselves out? You know, I, I, I hope it does. I don't know if it will, yeah. but I hope it does. Cause uh, the, the difference in value you get from a lightly used vehicle and a brand new vehicle is monstrous. If you look at the depreciation curves in years one and two, it's nuts, and for some cars, it's it's significantly nuts. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, I mentioned Scott's a big Tesla fan, so I just let him buy all these new vehicles. Yeah. Every time they come out with a new color, he has to buy one, and then I I just try to buy his old ones off of him, which has has worked out well. Yeah, you're for me. saving about thirty percent, probably. <laughs> it, so I think so. I think you know. Let's hope the trend keeps going that way as consumers get more and more comfortable with it. I think the one counter to that is that. A car is still a status symbol and having, you know, be like Scott and you want the latest and greatest, the shiniest and the most gadgets and, you know, you're willing to pay for it. And there's always going to be a subset of the consumer that does that, which is great for us. Uh, I mean, you and I who don't mind buying a one and two year old car that has all the latest gadgets and is awesome. Yeah, no, for sure. Um yeah, I want to pivot once more. So, uh, because you just highlighted something like there are all these like pretty different missions that different car owners might have, right? And for some people, it's utility to get to work. For for other people, it's a you know part of their identity and a status symbol. Um, when you're thinking about marketing and driving uh, traffic to your stores. Um, like, do you have a sort of persona-based model and you do different kinds of campaigns for those those different personas? Or have you figured out how to... Yeah, no, we definitely have a target. I think all great marketers know where the bullseye of the dartboard is. And that's where you aim. That doesn't mean you, you aren't going to get customers outside of that of the bullseye, but you always have a bullseye. And so we have one. Uh, ours tend to be very considered purchasers. Like, they're, they think about the value that we just talked about of a used vehicle. They think about the functionality. They also think about, uh, you know, is this something they like and want to uh, want to have, you know, kind of represent them a bit. So they're very, very considered. They do a lot of research, and they appreciate uh, cars that have been really well-conditioned, well-kept up, have, you know, 90-day warranties. All that stuff really matters to them. And so that's our target we go after them, and uh, and we get a lot of others outside the target. But uh, that's that would be the persona we go after. Got you. Um, and are there any like particular marketing tactics that you feel like are the bread and butter that have been most successful for you? That you um, well, for us? Yeah, I I don't think any particular tactic other than talking about value. I think value is a, a strong tactic. Like at Carmen, I don't know if you know this. We don't have sales. Uh, we obviously don't haggle. That's you know how, what we are founded on. Uh, we don't give discounts to different user groups or anything like that. It the price is the price is the price, and so we've never you know broken out Labor Day sale and you know Mother's Day sale and God knows what the next one's going to be. But uh, but we've relied on 
we feel that this is a great value that we're offering. And so we try to educate around that, and it's done pretty well for us. Yeah, I sort of think of you as having what I would call an everyday low price approach, right? Yeah. Is, a, is essentially it. And it's funny, in if you survey all of retail, true EDLP retailers tend to do better than promotional retailers. The The one caveat is once you become promotional, it's virtually impossible to recover your EDLP position. Um, and so we've we've seen some bad examples uh, in recent memory of our friends at like Macy's or, yeah. or uh, JCPenney trying to – uh, make that shift and have it not go well. Yeah, definitely be careful how you condition your consumer. Yeah, it turns right? out they will learn from you. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the most fascinating things to me about all these industries, and I think it's absolutely true in yours. Um, the traditional model used to really rely on what I'll call an information imbalance. Like the the traditional, not highly regarded used car dealership had a lot more information than the person buying the car. So only the dealership knew the history of that car uh, and what the true value of that car was. And likely all the information the buyer was going to get was the information that the dealer deemed appropriate to share to them, which was likely to be self-serving information. Um, Today we have this massive transparency. We have all these information sources, um, and it feels like – there's nothing that could be known about that vehicle that the consumer isn't going to know if they choose to before they they buy the car. And uh, so I, I noticed, like in your case, you make a lot of that information available. So I, you know, I can get that information from your own digital tools. You've enabled your salespeople with digital tools, so they have a bunch of that information. And then there there is a bunch of third party tools that the consumers can use as part of their consideration process as well. Do you view those third-party tools as a good thing because they help consumers figure out what the right vehicle is and you know you have the right vehicle at the best value? Or would you prefer that you could keep that customer in your own ecosystem more? Uh, no, I think we prefer uh, having transparency in this industry. We think if it was fully transparent and accurately transparent, we would do even better than we're doing now. I think that some of those tools – are partially true and partially not. I mean, when you look at things like uh, I get onto this site and it says, oh, this vehicle is a good deal, you know, whatever, great deal, good deal. What you don't know, what, you know, what they don't know, and hence the consumer doesn't know, is this car may have frame damage. Yeah. And that's not a good deal with a car with frame damage. Or this car may have an electrical issue going on. It still gets sold. We have some markets where where the average price of of a like-to-like vehicle with our inventory is actually below ours. But when we look at the cars, and we, we examine over 2 million cars a year, um, when we look at the cars, we passed on buying those cars to retail because we knew that there's something wrong. And now we're watching them being sold uh, at these other dealerships. And th- there's no way the consumer's really going to know that. Even when they use all these third-party tools, they just look at something and say, oh, great deal. Okay. Got you. So I think – so some of those tools I was referring to are sort of pricing deals, which is like – and, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine like that does arm the customer with some some new tools that they didn't have previously. But I also think of there being tools that give people pretty detailed history of the car. Um, are you saying that those, like, histories are are, are not are, – are imperfect in terms of – like identifying the potential flaws or devaluators of the vehicle? Yeah, no, we there definitely are tools that you can go and look at vehicle history. And those tools 
are better than not having any, and they are not 100% accurate by any stretch. And so uh, what they know, so some of those tools use, uh, you know, police reports and DMV data. Well, not every DMV department reports and not every police reports, and others use other kind of data, and it's just imperfect. And so... They do catch some things for sure. Like if I was on one of those sites and I saw this car has an electrical issue or it has eight owners or something like that, I'd be like, all right, that's definitely a no. Yeah. So I know that's, that's you know, uh, uh, not a good car, but there's some p- false positives. There's some listed as clean that just are not clean. Sure. And I can imagine a lot of them seem like they're based on public records. So if a car's been in an accident, great, I know that. If the frame is rusted... Um, or it was mistreated exactly. in some way that didn't create a police report. Uh, that's where, like, you you need to like have significant car knowledge or a smart yeah, friend. Exactly. Like, I could, you know, I could get in an accident in my car, you know, a single vehicle accident, and be like, I'm not going to report this to the police. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to report that by insurance company. I'll just go get it fixed and sell it. Right. Sure. Sure. That goes, happens all the time. Yeah. Go trade it into CarMax and get a new one. No. I'm yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we'll buy any car. Yeah. Any uh, car. But you probably are pretty good at evaluating the true value. <laughs> yeah. Out of all the cars that we buy, which is you know four hundred thousand a year, um, or even more, like six hundred thousand a year, uh, only about a third of them make the cut to get retailed again. The rest of them we auction off to other dealers who are going to sell them to you. Gotcha. All right. Um, so let me pivot to one more macro trend. Uh, I keep hearing that uh, teenagers are slower to get driver's licenses um, in a lot of uh, metros. And like, obviously, there are all these ride-sharing services that make it more possible to not own a vehicle at all. Um, I'm inferring from that that potentially like car ownership may have peaked. And I'm just curious, like, am I dead wrong and we're buying more cars than ever? Or, or is growth slowing down? Like, what is the overall status of car ownership? Yeah, no, we look at this pretty closely, and the overall status continues to grow. So uh, we look at a stat that is a number of vehicles per household, and that's actually increased over the last decade uh, with the advent of ride-sharing and all of that still moving up. And then, obviously, the United States continues to grow and add households. So uh, we see vehicle growth still. We haven't really seen it plateau. Now, it may be plateauing in new or something or a subcategory, but overall— uh, it's been a very minimal effect in some very dense markets. It's probably more exacerbated, but across most of America, it's it's a minor thing. Great! All my in laws from Detroit are now gonna ward over me that I've been wrong when I told them <laughs> that, that. Yeah, I'm glad I could help you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably more important that you help my in laws than me. Anyway. <laughs> um, okay, uh, so. Uh, Let's turn to the future for just a second. And if you could put your sort of futurist hat on, um, if we get in that time machine and go visit a CarMax store in 2025, is it going to feel a lot like the the experience you're rolling out right now? Or do you feel like it's going to continue to evolve? And are there any particular areas you're hoping it evolves in? Yeah, I, you know, I, as I mentioned, we're going to be rolling out this Omni experience to most of the country by February, but that still leaves you know another third of the country to go or so. And so, um, with about five years from now, it'll feel mostly similar. I think we're going to continue to innovate aggressively and iterate the offering. I think the consumer is going to get more and more comfortable doing more and more online. 
So I would envision that the visits to the physical stores is going to continue to go down in time. Um, I mentioned we're already down to about 15 minutes. That doesn't mean everyone's 15 minutes. Uh, But we think more and more will move towards that sub-hour level, 30 30 minutes or less, basically. Uh, So I think that's probably the primary feeling that you would see if if we walked in a store five years from now. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of other categories that – of retail that have been disrupted by digital and the uh, the store's role as a discovery and browsing has has greatly diminished, but its its role as a service and fulfillment um, center for that shopping experience has expanded. And it sounds like like you're anticipating to see more of that same progression in your space. Yeah, I think there'll still be a strong merchandising aspect to this because like you're going to buy a car, you're going to be sitting in it for hours and hours. Every used car, we, I, I will say every used car is like a snowflake. Everyone's different. They've had a different owner, different miles, different conditions. You just, you know, did somebody smoke or not smoke and all this. You're just going to, like, want to sit in it. And, and we'll bring a car to you. We'll let you test drive it at your house. Uh, but a lot of consumers just want to come, sit in a couple different cars, make sure that the, you know, the Honda Odyssey is the car that they really want and all the different car seats and everything fit in it. And, uh, and that's I don't think that's going to change too much. Sure. I think more and more will buy sight unseen, but largely we we want you to test drive it before you buy it. Just I mean, it's a lot of money. Oh, yeah, heck so. yeah. Yeah, um, and there is, uh, uh, I'm perfectly fine with people buying something digitally, but there is this um, uh, fun psychology element. There's this thing called the endowment effect. And like once you you try something, you now imagine yourself owning it. And so now, like frankly, the the psychological premise is, am I going to give this car back to Jim or am I going to keep it? Right. So literally like it's a loss aversion. Like one, once I imagine owning that, this endowment effect kicks in and it's, it's, you know, frankly much, much more likely that they're going to buy. So I, like, I certainly feel like there's, there's always a role for that, that, that physical try on and for that endowment effect to kick in. Um, you highlighted uh, one thing that I wanted to just follow up on a little bit. Like every car is a snowflake and it, um, it occurred to me. So again, if I'm a used uh, a new car dealership, I have this. I merchandise one car, and hopefully the dealership makes a bunch or the manufacturer makes a bunch of them that are exactly like that, that one car, maybe with some different colored paints. Um, in your inventory, you you could have a large quantity of the exact same make model, but each one is for your point unique and might have different value based on its attributes and all these different things. Um, how do you try to man, like, I, I could imagine as an e-commerce guy, I'm like, oh my God, that's a pain in the neck. Like every skew is, is quantity one. And, and however much I'm going to invest in the digital shelf for that skew, once that car sells, that investment goes with it. So like, uh, like, are there some particular digital amenities you think about, or how do you think about like telling the story of each individual car? Is it just high enough value that you can afford to invest a lot in each one? Or how oh, that? Look, I don't, I don't know how many you know Nissan Altimas I sold last year, but it was a lot, <laughs> literally in the you know tens of thousands. Yeah. And I took pic- 30 pictures of each one of those, 360-degree <laughs> pictures on the interiors, stills, exterior shots, and, um, you know, I'd highlight if they had new tires or, or what have you. We'd describe all the features, and we did that 
uh, last year over 750,000 times. So I wish I could take one picture of one Nissan and then say sure. it represents all, but that's that was not as transparent as we'd like to be. So we invest in it because we think it's the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, we're hunting for ways to do it more and more efficiently. But we spend about, you know, probably every 14 minutes we produce a new car in a store, right? So if a store's taking cars, reconditioning them, uh, trading, you know, replacing parts that are worn, touching up paint, uh, you know, waxing, polishing, pictures, all that. Every 14 minutes, they're rolling out. Um, and we do that across, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of our stores. And so it's just the right thing to do, and we invest the time and the money to get it done right. Uh, that That is interesting. And, it, I mean, I, I certainly agree with that approach. In the apparel industry, there are these off-price retailers, and uh, they get very thin inventory, of, of items, but they're high value items. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think of like a TJ Maxx, for example. And, and so they, you know, often they talk about their store experience as a treasure hunt. There's, yep. there's one really good jewel in there and you're only going to find it if you come visit that store. And, um, uh, there's a lot of talk. They just had an earnings report, um, and they're way behind on digital. And they would say, yeah, because digital is not important to us. You can't have the treasure hunt online. We can't create a great digital experience for all these, unique items that we have, you know, depth one of. Um, and so they, they've kind of said, oh, digital is for selling other stuff in addition to the, the treasure hunts you find in our store. Um, and I feel like you're, you're sort of an example of the fact that, that that's not necessarily true or sustainable. And I, I you know, I, I feel like there's a bunch of advantages to the transparency of having all that inventory online. And, and you sort of do have an online digital treasure hunt. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I like I I can't imagine saying you know being able to do that uh, you know and a digital treasure hunt is impossible when you got companies like eBay out there that that's all it is is a digital treasure hunt right so um, yeah we believe we believe that it's worth it and we believe that's what the consumer wants I can't imagine not aggressively digitally merchandising my vehicles. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, and that's going to be a perfect place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our uh, listeners' allotted time. Uh, so if folks want to continue the conversation, you're welcome to jump on our Facebook page or hit us up on Twitter. Um, Jim, if uh, listeners want to get in touch with you, do you uh, hang out somewhere on the digital internet, like LinkedIn? or Other than those? spying on my kids? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I, I think LinkedIn is probably the safest place to, <laughs> to sniff me out. All right. Well, hopefully we, your kids won't listen to this episode, um, and we'll put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Uh, but, Jim, I really enjoyed our chat, and I, I really appreciate the time you took today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 